The union that represents Hollywood writers has reached a tentative deal with the major studios, potentially ending a months-long strike. Coming up, what does this mean for the industry and the actors who are still on strike? Today is Monday, the 25th of September. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, at the Minnesota State Fair, Army recruiters are trying to entice young men and women to sign up for military service, but they're facing serious challenges. Armenians are fleeing an enclave in Azerbaijan, this after the Azerbaijani military took over Nagorno-Karabakh. And new parents often struggle to remain close with friends who don't have kids. You're kind of tied to your home in this way that makes it very difficult to socialize the way that I did before. And my friendships did change, and that was inevitable, I think. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Screenwriters in major studios now have a tentative agreement to end a nearly five-month-old strike that virtually paralyzed Hollywood. More than 11,000 members of the Writers Guild of America still have to sign off on it. Also, tens of thousands of film and television actors with SAG-AFTRA are still on strike, all fighting for higher pay, benefits, and stronger job protections in an industry that's increasingly invested in AI. <laughs> Some snacks for striking auto workers near Chicago this morning, courtesy of Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. The political attentions about to heat up this week when President Biden joins workers on the picket lines in Detroit tomorrow and a day later, former President Donald Trump follows suit. Thousands of United Auto Workers members went on strike against General Motors, Ford and Stellantis 10 days ago for higher pay, shorter work weeks and stronger job protections. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports a separate Auto Workers Union in Canada has approved a deal with Ford, but it's not yet clear how that might play into U.S. talks. Members of Unifor, the Canadian Auto Workers Union, struck a deal without striking. Unifor says production workers in Canada will now make 35% more than equivalent workers in the U.S. Ford only employs about 5,600 union workers in Canada. It has 10 times that many UAW workers in the States. The UAW continues to negotiate with Ford, GM, and Stellantis. It seems closer to a deal with Ford, but the company's last update indicated significant gaps remain between the two sides. Workers are trying to get back some benefits they gave up about 15 years ago. The companies say the union's demands would make it impossible to compete with non-union rivals. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Democrat New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is rebuffing calls to resign after being indicted on federal bribery charges. Charles Lane of member station WNYC reports after Menendez addressed reporters without taking questions this morning. Menendez is accused of giving sensitive information to Egypt and trying to interfere with criminal cases. Federal prosecutors say businessmen bribed him with gold bars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and a luxury car. He read from a prepared statement without addressing most of the accusations, but said he kept large amounts of cash in his home for emergencies. This will be the biggest fight uh, yet. But as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. Menendez didn't say if he'll run for re-election in 2024. For NPR News, I'm Charles Lane in New Jersey. U.S. stocks end the day higher with the Dow closing up 43 points at 34,006. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston now has a seat on the MBTA's board of directors. Mayor Michelle Wu has named her appointee for the volunteer position, a newly created slot, after weeks of evaluating public nominations. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. The mayor has tapped Boston resident Mary Skelton Roberts to represent the city on the T's board. Skelton Roberts serves on the governor's Latino Empowerment Council and works in clean energy. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, Wu said Skelton Roberts has a passion for improving public transportation and close ties with transit advocates. I have complete confidence that she is going to be off and running when it comes to the technical background and the expertise about transportation policy in particular and the MBTA. Skelton Roberts will attend her first board meeting this Thursday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. State tax collections for the first half of this month are just over 3% more than the same time last year. The news from the Massachusetts Department of Revenue comes as state lawmakers are set to unveil their proposed tax relief package later this week. Numbers show the Department of Revenue has collected $2.4 billion in the first half of this month. The Boston Convention and Exhibition Center ranks near the bottom of convention centers in the country. That's according to a recent Wall Street Journal ranking of the 30 largest convention centers in the U.S., WBR's in Indoor and Wameka has more. The rankings were mostly weighted toward the size and quality of the convention center. Some other factors include the vibrancy of the city, affordability, food costs, weather, and walkability. Overall, Boston ranked 24th out of 30. Convention centers in Las Vegas, Chicago, San Diego, and Orlando topped the list. But the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center did get high marks in certain categories. The convention center ranked in the top five for hotel availability and in the top 10 for restaurant availability. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Clouds press on into the evening and tomorrow, too. Overnight lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow's high is only about 61. Cloud cover should last for through Wednesday, with uh, mainly sunny skies due in for around midweek, rising just to the mid-60s. 60 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual Open House, October 1st, buacademy.org. And Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The Army is struggling to fill its ranks. Last year, it was 15,000 soldiers short. This year is better, but the Army is still expected to fall short of its recruiting goal. Two big reasons. The Army is in a war for talent, with a strong economy offering good jobs and good benefits. And COVID kept recruiters out of high school's prime scouting locations. NPR's Tom Bowman and producer Lauren Hodges traveled to the Minnesota State Fair, where, amid those hawking corn dogs, fried pickles, and cheese curds, the Army is trying to sell itself. Staff Sergeant Joshua Spearman grips the metal bench and eyes the crowd through his dark, wraparound sunglasses. He's a brawny soldier in a black t-shirt, his left arm covered in tattoos. There's an endless flow, 
families with strollers, couples with just one stuffed animals, elderly fairgoers in motorized wheelchairs. Soon he eyes his prey, a cluster of young men. You know what's good? Eating all the fair snacks, come work it off. I'm so serious, do the deadlift challenge. No pull-up? Nothing? Ah! When you grow a t-shirt, man, it's like the ultimate fair story. Behind him, a small grass lot with a few pop-up canopy tents, a pull-up bar, some weights for deadlifts, a Humvee with its door open, all designed to lure in prospects. One of the college students, Andrew Magnuson, takes the bait. He's a hulking guy with a Minnesota t-shirt and a crown of reddish curls. He nails the deadlift. Two more. 19. And gets an army t-shirt, but the army doesn't get him. It's not for me. I know that much. I don't know. I don't like fighting. And his friends, they're not buying it either. So have you guys ever thought about the army? Not particularly. When someone says army, what's the first thing that pops in your head? War. Sergeant Robert Petteron tries his best to make it sound like something they can fit into their lives with ease. There's a part-time option where you only do the Army one week in a month, two weeks during the summer, but we'll pay for your college. But even with the financial incentives, it doesn't stick. Does that sound like something you guys would like to get a little bit more information about? Uh, I might pass for now, but we might be back around. We'll, we'll see. Okay. What about you? I'll probably pass. What they're saying is echoed in Army surveys. The Army found that many don't want to join because they fear getting wounded or killed, even though the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are long over, or they just don't want to leave home. So the Army has come up with a new marketing technique with an old slogan. Be all you can be. 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 The Army is pushing personal development and a general sense of service to the nation, like helping the victims of floods or wildfires. As right now, we're not at war with anyone. Military doesn't mean war. It's great benefits. You get health insurance, dental insurance. So you just got to sit down and explain it to the, to the younger generation. Would you ever join? I'm actually thinking about it, actually. Yeah? Yeah. The recruiter's ears perk up and he calls over someone to take her information. Think about joining? Yeah. That would be awesome. Hey. Yes, sir. So she's thinking about joining. Oh, you're thinking about joining, huh? Yeah. Oh, how old are you? I'm 16. One senior officer tells NPR the Army is embarking on a high school blitz to find more recruits now that the pandemic is over. Still, officials expect the lagging recruiting climate will continue for some time. As a result, the Army will likely have to trim its forces in bases around the country. Not all those here are ready to join. That's because they're at least a decade away from recruiting age. A young boy works a handheld remote under the guidance of a recruiter. He maneuvers a small, tracked army robot around a series of plastic highway cones, using a monitor to simulate what it's like to control these in the field. The boy is already a pro, because it's basically a video game. But even if you want to join the Army, you might not make the cut. A recent Pentagon study found less than one quarter of America's youth would qualify for military service without a waiver because they're overweight, have criminal records, or mental or physical health problems. So how are they trying to make up for those lost numbers? The Army is increasingly turning to those who recently arrived in the United States. The Army is also hiring more immigrant recruits, like Sergeant First Class Noella Laxon, whose family came from the Philippines. 
She's standing at a card table covered with brochures, lanyards, and dog tags. Most of my applicants are immigrants. Because I kind of relate to them, you know, a lot of them. She'll tell them her own story to put them at ease. Also helpful that she's a woman. Majority of my applicants are females. <laughs> I tell them, like, are you going to have people tell you what, you what can you do or cannot do? About 16% of the Army is now female, a number that keeps edging up. Women tend to be higher quality recruits, score higher on tests, and have fewer brushes with the law. And now all ground combat jobs are open to women, so the Army is pushing that in some of its ads, including a woman spotting a target inside an Abrams tank. But all that leads to another hurdle to recruiting. Army surveys show some 20% of women questioned were wary of joining, saying they'll be discriminated against. Beyond that, sexual harassment and assault are still a persistent problem. Last year, the Army saw a 9% drop in reports of sexual assault, though the year earlier, there was a 26% increase in reports involving soldiers. But Lieutenant Colonel Kristen Grace, who commands all the recruiters, played that down. I've never experienced anything like that. Um, I've been fortunate, you know, not to experience anything like that. And Sergeant First Class Laxon says she never had a problem. For me personally, I've never experienced it. But it is a concern. One possible recruit, Harmony Cook, says her friends are worried about it when she talks about joining the military. They say, like, I'm going to be treated more differently from the guys or, um, like, the guys are going to be intimidating and everything and that I might not be able to stand a chance. But she wants to become a medic and get a $50,000 bonus. So far, Harmony is one of some 25 potential recruits here who have requested a formal interview. Another 750 have asked for more information. And while the Army is playing down combat to attract female recruits, that tough guy approach isn't totally going away. It just depends who's listening. Bro, you ever, you ever thought about joining that? Landon Arends is a college student from Iowa who said he's not interested in joining right now. Not at the moment. I'm, I'm in college. But Spearman reels him back in. I'm going to show you what, bro. Come back. Uh, I do. You yep. have your phone on you? Yep. Here, pull it out, man. Arends wrestles at school and is pretty set on staying there. Spearman has an answer for that. I, I wrestle at corporate college. So. But they don't pay you to wrestle. Yeah. Pretty much student loans. That and, sucks, man. Yeah. That sucks real bad. Yeah. I wrote a $214,000 check to a high school girl last year to go to Gustavus. Unlike the college kids we heard from earlier, Arends wants to see some action on the battlefield. But when he thinks combat, he thinks the Marine Corps. Spearman brushes that aside. At three deployments with this Special Forces group, I've never seen a Marine out there fighting, man. Really? Yeah, they're a big force-on-force -force conflict type of type people, right? Yeah. Um, you want to be in the fight, man? Our Green Berets out there in the fight, our Army Rangers are out there in the fight. To seal the deal, Spearman pulls in a fellow recruiter. Right there, Captain Ellen. Um, Captain Owen is actually Ranger Tab. Um, he is Ranger qualified for the Ranger Assessment Selective Program. Um, and on top of being Ranger qualified, he's also a paratrooper like myself, and right. he's an infantryman, right? right? So this could be your goal. In less than five minutes, Sergeant Spearman seems to have landed at least one more recruit. I got you on Instagram, bro. Yep. You got my number, man. Reach yeah. out, man. For real. Right. Let's make I'm a difference. Good. All right. All right. Take it easy, man. You guys have a good one. You too. Yeah. Right, Ranger tab off here real quick, sir. Tom Bowman, NPR News at the Minnesota State Fair.
Major League Baseball's postseason is about to begin. All year long, one team has dominated, the Atlanta Braves. They've been leading the majors in homers, runs, and hits for most of the season. And as Peter Biello of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports, their fans are watching with a sense of awe. One night after a recent Braves win, fan Matt Dover waits outside Truist Park, where just hours before, Braves star right fielder Ronald Acuna Jr. hit two home runs. Bam! (laughs) My God, that thing got out in four and a half seconds. That thing was like a heat-seeking missile dead center. Dover believes Acuna is a lock for National League MVP. Recently, Acuna joined the 40-40 club, becoming the fifth player in Major League history to reach 40 homers and 40 stolen bases in a single season. The Braves have the best record overall and were the first to clinch a playoff spot. Best team in baseball, hands down. This year's Braves, 100%. Next to him, Jonathan Lang waves a red Braves jersey. It's covered in player signatures, and he's hoping to land a few more. He says first baseman Matt Olson has made this team special by setting his own record. Breaking Andrew Jones' single-season home run record, 51. Olson also leads the majors in homers and RBIs. Collectively, the team has the best batting average in the majors. As for pitching, righty Spencer Strider leads in strikeouts and could win the Cy Young Award, baseball's top honor for pitchers. On the other side of the park, in a baseball-themed entertainment district known as the Battery, two women are dressed in Braves gear and elaborately decorated hats. We've got the feathers, all the colors of the Braves, um, just bringing the spirit. Jennifer Lemming believes it's also the team spirit that makes the difference. They're giving high fives. Like after they make a play, you can tell there's just a lot of joy um, in what they're doing. Even even when they're down, like they never give up. And she says that joy makes them fun to watch. The Braves have had a record number of sellout crowds at Truist Park this year. Chevy Clark from Atlanta came with friends. He says the Braves' stats are great, but it's really about the team's chemistry on the field. They all having fun. They remember that it's a game that we all used to play in our backyard with our pops, with our mom. They're throwing socks at us. We hitting the balls with plastic bats. You know, that's what it is at the end of the day. And he says remembering to have fun could take the Braves to another World Series. For NPR News, I'm Peter Biello in Atlanta. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this soggy Monday afternoon. Coming up, why friendships that have endured conflict, marriage, and illness may not survive the arrival of a little baby. Traders started off the week on Wall Street with gains. The Dow picked up just over a tenth of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both pulled in about four-tenths of a percent. A Boston-based health tech company is teaming up with a Danish drug maker, Novo Nordisk, to develop new treatments for conditions that cause heart attack, stroke, and diabetes. Under the agreement, Valo Health will get $60 million up front and up to $2.7 billion overall. Fallow could also get potential royalty payments and additional funding for research and development. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. WBUR's Field Guide to Boston is a new way to experience the hub. Go on and check it out. Find your way at WBUR.org slash field guide. Red Sox have the night off, then greet the Tampa Bay Rays at Fenway Park tomorrow night. The Sox have lost their last their last six series. This is WBUR.
Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Clouds continue tonight, some gusty winds, temperatures about 56. Then for tomorrow, cloudy skies, maybe a little bit of sunshine, highs about 60. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After nearly 150 days, we have a deal. Tentatively, that could end one of the two labor strikes that have brought Hollywood to a standstill. Screenwriters, represented by their Writers Guild of America union, have agreed to terms in principle with the major studios and streaming services. Now, a contract is not yet signed, and most film and TV production won't yet resume because screen actors, who belong to a separate union, have not negotiated a similar deal. Still, the Writers Guild is calling the working agreement, quote, exceptional with meaningful gains and protections. The Hollywood Reporter's editor-at-large, Kim Masters, is here to fill us in on the latest. Hey there, Kim. Hey there. Okay, so there's a lot we don't know that's not yet public. From what you understand, sketch out, what are the key points of this agreement? Yeah, we don't know for sure, but we believe the writers made big gains in terms of three key demands. So they wanted minimum staffing guarantees for the writers' rooms, which had been pared down in recent history. They wanted compensation and success on the streamers. Right now, they don't know the data of how things perform, and they don't get extra money if there is a success because they can't document things. Uh, uh-huh. And the big, big issue, too, it was artificial intelligence. Writers do not want to be handed a script generated by AI and told to give it a polish. Yeah, and I know that was the very last thing they have they were haggling over. Um, still, you know, as they continue to iron out the language on this, the Writers Union does sound quite excited about it, quite thrilled with the outcome. What about the group? representing film and TV studios. Are they equally enthusiastic? I doubt it. They've been going through a really, really hard time. They're in this moment of transition from the old way, which was the cable bundle, and they could make a lot of money from these cable providers. Streaming is costing them so much. They're hemorrhaging money, except for Netflix, Uh, all the other Disney, Paramount. They're all losing millions and millions of dollars on streaming. They haven't figured out yet how to survive, really, in a streaming world. But more and more people are cutting the cord uh, with the cable bundles. So, you know, this is a very difficult time for the studios, and their stock has been challenged. It's been really, really hard. Does this tentative deal to end the writer's strike 
portend anything for the actors who are still on strike. Their picket line continues. Yes, I think the studios are going to try to go very quickly to SAG-AFTRA and come up with a deal. And I will note that both you and I are SAG-AFTRA members. but And I will note we are governed by a different contract, so we are not <laughs> yes. striking. But SAG-AFTRA does represent the actors. And they, yes. they surely are combing through this to see if there's anything that might help their cause. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are going to hope that the pattern set by the Writers Guild will apply to a lot of concerns that the actors have, especially artificial intelligence. It's a slightly different concern. The actors are worried about their image being used in ways that they are not comfortable with. So if the Writers Guild came up with really strong language on artificial intelligence, that might help a lot with screen actors. Uh, and last thing, just give us a sense of, does the air feel a little lighter, brighter out there today? Does this give <laughs> any sense of, of hope after what has been a really long summer? Yes, well, it is Yom Kippur, which many people in Hollywood observe, mm -hmm. but definitely there was such relief. There's a bar in, in North Hollywood where a lot of members of the Writers Guild gathered yesterday evening in the, into the wee hours. And from what I am hearing, it was a very raucous, upbeat celebration. They, they feel like they've had a big win here. Kim Masters, editor-at-large at The Hollywood Reporter and host of KCRW's The Business. Kim Masters, great to talk to you. Thank you. It's good to talk to you as well. About a year ago, Usher went viral in front of a small crowd on a tiny stage. Just when I thought I said all I can say, my chick on the side say she got one on the way. These are my confessions. Well, now he's getting ready to play a totally opposite kind of show, the Super Bowl halftime. Up, it's, happening. it's happening. It has happened, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes, it is happening. Now, of course, the Super Bowl is not happening until February 2024, so you will have to wait a few months to see Usher take that big stage. But we wanted to mark the moment today, and NPR Music's Stephen Thompson joins us to do just that. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so first, just tell me, how big of a deal is it for Usher to perform at the Super Bowl? Because, I mean, we see big names every year at this show, yeah? Well, I think over time, the Super Bowl halftime show has come to be the ultimate form of mainstream validation and acceptance. It's an audience of tens of millions of people all over the world. It has to be exciting to as many people as possible. And so what is more mainstream than playing a Super Bowl halftime show? If nothing else, it's a massive, massive piece of validation for Usher himself. Massive validation. Okay, well, we should know that this is not his first time on the Super Bowl stage. Like, he performed alongside the Black Eyed Peas way back in 2011. I... Totally did not even remember that. Is it kind of surprising that Usher hasn't headlined a halftime show up until now? Like, why do you think it's taken this long? Well, Usher's about 30 years into his career. He's been one of the biggest stars in R&B during that time. But when you think about the arc of not only Usher's career, but the arc of the Super Bowl halftime show, it's really evolved into a thing you can headline. When he was coming up in the 90s, a lot of the Super Bowl halftime shows were medleys. Ah, so, But it yeah. wasn't just like one artist who was like in charge of holding that stage for the entire time. So there aren't actually that many artists who have been solo headliners. Huh. Well, Usher released his last full-length studio album something like seven years ago. And then his Tiny Desk concert, which you heard a snippet from earlier, has like 18 million views now. His songs are still played on the radio. Why do you think Usher has been able to stay relevant in music for so, so long, for over three decades now? 
Well, I think part of it is just songcraft. Part of it is the quality of that voice. If you go back and watch that Tiny Desk concert, he's just in such strong voice throughout. And I think he's also uh, been able to seize opportunities as they've happened. He has stayed in really excellent voice. He still looks basically the same. He does! I'm so jealous, <laughs> actually. He's just stayed on top of his game. You know, you mentioned he hasn't released a full-length studio album in seven years, but he is dropping his next album the day of his Super Bowl oh. halftime performance. Ooh, very so strategic. he is a man who knows mm-hmm. how to take advantage of opportunities when they are presented to him. Clearly. You know, you mentioned that now the Super Bowl halftime show is much more of a single headliner show. But there's also another evolution, and that's the prominence of hip hop. Like with big names such as Rihanna, Missy Elliott, Snoop Dogg, now Usher performing at the Super Bowl in recent years. How would you say the halftime show has changed since Jay-Z was brought on to produce them starting in 2019? So when Jay-Z was brought in to help produce the Super Bowl halftime show, it's important to remember that around that time, the NFL had been embroiled in a lot of controversies around the quarterback Colin Kaepernick. And so a lot of black artists were really hesitant to work with the NFL and work with the Super Bowl. And once Jay-Z was brought in, that was designed in part to to kind of expand the reach of the artists that were going to perform at the halftime show. In the years leading up to that, you had a lot of like older, whiter, classic rock acts, people like Tom Petty and The Who. And and so I think the shift that you're talking about just really diversified the artists who were playing the halftime show. Well, I love the shift. That is NPR Music's Stephen Thompson. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Elsa. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. This fall, California will launch a new type of civil court for people with serious mental illness. Some residents are worried about coercing people into treatment. That story coming up in about 20 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. It's windy out there. Could have some strong gusts tonight. Lots of clouds, lows in the mid-50s. Clouds should stick around for tomorrow. A few breaks here and there. Another chilly day, only about 61 degrees. Then skies start to clear out on Wednesday. Sun should break through. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Sun should return for the rest of the week. 60 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com and H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel and Egypt, next weekend. HandelandHaydn.org. I'm Deepar Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The White House has announced $1.4 billion to improve rail safety and repair lines in some parts of the country. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports much of the funding is coming from the bipartisan infrastructure law that President Biden signed nearly two years ago. 
The Gulf Coast has not had an Amtrak train since Hurricane Katrina damaged the tracks in 2005. Knox Ross is with the Southern Rail Commission, and he says these federal funds will finally bring back an Amtrak line across Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. This is the piece of the puzzle that has been remaining.、Um, and once we get this done, what you will have is a 21st century railroad between Mobile and New Orleans. He says that will give a tourism boost to the region's growing coastal cities. A large portion of these federal funds will also go to upgrading the country's supply chain, from track improvements for moving wheat across Washington State to electric trains connected to the port of Baltimore. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basahan, Birmingham. President Biden will travel to Michigan tomorrow to join the picket line of striking auto workers. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the president will underscore his support for union workers' right to engage in collective bargaining. He has made it very, very clear that he supports union workers. He supports the UAW workers. And tomorrow, what you're going to see is is historic, right? This is going to be a historic visit,、uh, and the president is going to continue to show his support, not just from the last couple of years, but as he has been in the public eye as a senator, as a vice president, his support for for unions. Member. Of the United Auto Workers Union have been on strike against the big three automakers since September 15th. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 43 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The owner of a major natural gas pipeline that runs through Eastern Mass says it wants to expand the system to bring more natural gas into the region. The company says the project will increase energy reliability, but environmentalists say it flies in the face of the climate goals of many states in the region. Here's WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Enbridge. The fossil fuel company behind the proposal says bringing more gas into the Northeast will reduce energy prices. Create more stability on the grid and help lower carbon emissions. Its logic there is that on really cold days, when power plants often rely on oil, they could bring gas instead. But Nathan Phillips, a climate activist and Boston University professor who studies natural gas infrastructure, says states in the region have better options for cleaner and more reliable sources of energy. He adds that he and other environmental advocates plan to fight this expansion project. We're mobilizing, and we're going to pressure everywhere to put an end to this. Enbridge is expected to begin the federal permitting process in a few months. For ninety point nine WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Police are investigating after graffiti containing hate speech was found outside St. Peter's Armenian Apostolic Church in Watertown. The graffiti referred to the disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The tension between the two countries flared up last week. Watertown is home to one of the largest Armenian communities in the U.S. The city of Salem will be offering free weekend shuttles to visitors this Halloween season. Buses will run from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. between downtown Salem and three free satellite parking lots. Those lots are at Salem State University, Salem High, and behind Salem Hospital. Service begins this Saturday and runs through October. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach, committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. 
drizzle through the afternoon and evening. Clouds tonight down around 56 for a low. Windy tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. A little bit of sunshine, barely budging above 60. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Over the last couple of weeks, as I've been scrolling through social media, there is one article that I keep seeing over and over again in friends' Instagram stories and Facebook posts. The article is from The Cut, and the headline reads, Adorable Little Detonators, Our Friendship Survived Bad Dates, Illness, Marriage, Fights. Why Can't It Survive Your Baby? The fact of the matter is that as our lives change, so do our friendships. And whether you are the friend with kids or the only one without them, this can be a really challenging phase to navigate. There is just so much to unpack here. So we called up two people who have been thinking about this topic a lot. We're joined by Allison P. Davis. She is a features writer for New York Magazine and The Cut. And she reported and wrote the article that spurred some new debate on this topic. Hi, Allison. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. We are also joined by Claire Fallon, one of the authors behind the podcast and Substack Rich Text, alongside her co-host and collaborator, Emma Gray. Claire has been writing about these kinds of issues for years. Hey, Claire. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks to you as well. All right, Allison, I want to start with you. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about your article and what made you want to explore the subject of what happens when parenthood enters the chat and the dynamics around some friendships? Well, they're changing. Sure. I mean, part of it was casual conversation with my editor where I was explaining that I was at this weird inflection point where I'm 37, and a couple of years ago, um, my very close friends started getting pregnant, and it was sort of an en masse thing. Like, it wasn't just one or two. It was um, at, at one point the count got up got up to nine friends who were in various stages of pregnancy or family planning. When that conversation started, I started doing a little research in April and started doing some reporting, and started speaking to people who, on both sides, both parents and um, non-child having people were sort of feeling the same thing and, and wanted to talk about it. And Allison, there is this piece of data that was in that piece that really surprised me, even if maybe it shouldn't have. And I, I want to ask you about it. It's from the journal Demographic Research in the year 2017, and it, it's research that comes out of the Netherlands. And it actually puts some data and research behind how the age that parents have a child impacted their personal relationships. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I, I found this study super interesting only because it gave me some guidelines to a, a question that started feeling existential, which was, will I lose all of my friends and will I ever get them back? And then the study says that sort of after the age of three, people sort of come out of this haze and they come back to their social lives and they come back to being able to manage things and they're a little freer and you can sort of resume 
your close friendships again. And so in some ways that was hopeful, just thinking like, okay, this is not a forever, it's just a, an adjustment period and all friendships have, all relationships have ebbs and flows. And this is just one to ride out and we can come out of it on the other side even better. Clara, I wanna learn a little bit more from you about where kind of the viewpoint from which you come into this conversation. I think I'm remembering correctly that you have two kids, right? Yes, I have a three-year-old and I have a newborn. What was that like for you and how did it impact your friendships? Yeah, so I was pretty anxious about it. And I mean, as it played out, the reality is that, yeah, you just don't have as much time and you don't have the freedom. You know, I can't go out without my baby unless I hire a sitter or unless my husband is home alone now with two kids, which neither of us knows how to be home alone with our two kids right now. So that's the next bridge to cross. But, you know, you're kind of tied to your home in this way that makes it very difficult to socialize the way that I did before. I rely a little bit more on very scheduled well in advance dinner dates after bedtime. I rely more on let's meet up in the park for a little picnic with the baby and text, you know, and that's just the way that my friendships look right now. But, you know, I think that I was more anxious than maybe I had to be because I think in reality, we all care about each other and we understood that we're just sort of at different life stages right now and we have to give each other, you know, some effort, but also some grace for the ways that we don't fit into each other's lives perfectly anymore. Allison, one of the things I really loved about your piece is that you not only interrogated your own experience with this topic, but you also talked to this incredible range of people, parents and non-parents alike. And in those conversations, did you learn anything that surprised you? Well, the thing that really surprised me was sort of this, I heard it from more than one person, especially from the, from the parents side of things, that it isn't just a given how you're going to show up not only in their lives as a parent, but also in their child's lives as a friend. I had one woman, Jessalyn, who I spoke to, she's a, a mom in Los Angeles who is a black woman in her 40s who adopted a child. And she has a very close friend and she asked him to be not just like an uncle figure, but also a godfather and to really be involved. And it spooked him at first because he had never really had a lot of exposure to children. I think at some point in our conversation, you mentioned that he hadn't even like really held a, a newborn and, and it made him feel slightly uncomfortable and he took a little bit of a step back. And in sort of questioning whether or not he knew how to be there for Jessalyn, but also for Jessalyn's uh, son, he discovered that he really, really did want to be part of uh, her son's life in, in a, a real way that I'm like, whoa, how do you have time for that? And a job where he's like taking the child to Taekwondo, hanging out with him in the park, just having little like solo play dates. And I found that really inspirational that all it took was sort of a conversation, but an honest beat of introspection to navigate something that could have really ended a long-term friendship. And I found that aspect of it surprising that I don't just need to talk to like my mom friend and say like, how do you need me to show up for you? Is it just coming over with dinner? Is it helping with this? But it's also, how do you want me in your child's life? And can I do that? Before I let both of you go, one of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation with the two of you together is because I, this feels like a topic to which there's not one answer. There aren't necessarily easy answers. I mean, at this point in my life, and we're all in the same age bracket, so we can probably relate, but I've got so many friends who have kids, so many who have decided to be child-free by choice. And I should also note a lot of friends who really want to be parents and have struggled to do so or haven't had the opportunity. And 
I we're just all at such different places and on this journey. And I just wonder from each of your perspectives, how do you think we can approach our friendships and this kind of shifting, changing phase of life in a way that honors and respects where each of us are along this road and the fact that these are relationships that matter to us? What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's all about trying to have the the love and care for your friends to think about what they need and what they're going through before they have to remind you. I'm always trying to somewhat, if I can, anticipate what my friends might be thinking or feeling or worried about with, you know, navigating this so that, you know, they don't feel the need to have to defend themselves from me, you know, to to go into these situations trying to be mindful of where they are in life and trying to take that into account and how I talk to them and how I structure our time together. And, you know, to not always be trying to treat them as combatants where I need to secure my territory because we're, we're friends. We, we love each other. And so we should be looking out for each other in these interactions and not just ourselves. Claire Fallon is a writer and podcaster behind Rich Text. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for having me. And Allison P. Davis is a features writer for New York Magazine and The Cut. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, guys. This is NPR News. Several thousand ethnic Armenians have already fled an enclave in Azerbaijan. Azeri troops took over Nagorno-Karabakh last week after many months of blocking aid to the region. The U.S., which tried but failed to broker a peace deal, is now calling on Azerbaijan to protect those Armenians who want to stay. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The images and videos are grim, cars lining up to leave Nagorno-Karabakh with refugees pouring into Armenia. This woman, speaking to the Associated Press, called it a nightmare, saying her village in Nagorno-Karabakh was shelled. She says almost no one is left there. This is a massive depopulation of Karabakh by its Armenian population. That's Thomas DeWall of the think tank Carnegie Europe. He's a longtime expert on the former Soviet republics in the Caucasus. This is the end game of a 30-plus-year-old conflict in which both sides have committed atrocity. There's been ethnic cleansing. Huge amounts of hatred have been cultivated, especially on the Azerbaijani side. For the past 10 months, Azerbaijan blocked the only humanitarian route into Nagorno-Karabakh, home to about 120,000 ethnic Armenians. Just last week, it managed a military takeover. Now, Azerbaijan says it will reintegrate the enclave in a way that protects civilians. But DeWall says the Armenian residents of the region were not afforded any special rights and their local government is being dismantled. Let's add to that the fact that um, almost none of them actually speak the Azerbaijani language. So all of that means that really for the vast majority of people, they see no future in Azerbaijan. He says U.S. and European diplomats were blindsided by Azerbaijan's actions. They had worked for years to try for a different outcome that would ensure the rights of ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, though they always saw the region as part of Azerbaijan. Today at the State Department, spokesman Matthew Miller said the U.S. wants to see outside observers allowed in now to make sure Azerbaijan follows through on its obligations. Azerbaijan has a responsibility to protect civilians and ensure the humane treatment of all, including those it suspects of being combatants. 
Azerbaijan's President Ilham Aliyev seemed to be on a bit of a victory tour, hosting Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in an Azeri enclave that borders Turkey. Aliyev wants to develop a land bridge that would cross through Armenia to connect the enclave to Azerbaijan. Miller says that Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been talking to his Turkish counterpart about this. We continue to hope that all of our allies and partners could play a constructive role in uh, reaching a lasting agreement, and that, of course, would include Turkey. Some U.S. lawmakers are pushing the State Department to do much more to protect ethnic Armenian cultural sites in Nagorno-Karabakh. The Carnegie Endowment's Thomas DeWall says a lot is at stake in this conflict. It's tragic for the tens of thousands of people who are losing their homes. It's going to have huge reverberations across the Armenian world because Karabakh has enormous significance for Armenians as a place of Armenian heritage and history and churches, which is now basically being completely taken over by Azerbaijan, has a very uncertain future in Azerbaijan. Andy says those who are fleeing are also angry with the prime minister of Armenia for not doing enough to help them. DeWall suspects this could lead to some political turmoil in Armenia. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, police officers are on trial or facing charges in multiple state-level murder cases this fall. We'll hear what the, or see what the data show about the rate at which police are being prosecuted for alleged wrongdoing. That story and much more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together. And Elliott Community Human Services, working to end the homelessness crisis by providing evidence-based care. A raw afternoon with a cool wind tonight, falling to the mid-50s with overcast skies, some winds kicking up. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds, limited sunshine, if any, about 61 degrees tops. Could have a generally sunny day for a change on Wednesday, up around 67 degrees. 60 now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. TheFreedomTrail.org. Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. And Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house October 1st. BUAcademy.org. The nasal spray Narcan saves lives during opioid overdoses. Getting your hands on it costs you. Higher the price, the fewer people are going to splurge to have this with them. A search for over-the-counter Narcan tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Soon, California judges will oversee the treatment of some people with serious psychotic illness. A recently passed state law gives county courts expansive new powers to compel people into care. Some say these new courts, called care courts, will help clean up the streets. Others worry they could harm vulnerable patients. April Domboski at KQED has this report from Orange County, one of the first counties tasked with implementing this brand new system. Orange County is known for its beaches. People playing volleyball in bikinis, riding cruisers along the bike path. For Heidi Sweeney, it's where the voices in her head told her to go to be safe. I ran and I hid. For months, she was living behind a bush next to a liquor store, drinking vodka all day to drown out the voices. When social workers offered her help, she refused. I was like, I'm not going to those groups. I'm not going through that treatment. I don't need that. You know, those that's for people that are sick. I'm not sick. Then Sweeney got arrested for petty theft, and the judge gave her a choice, jail or treatment. Sweeney says if she hadn't been forced into care, she wouldn't be here today. I mean, I'm so thankful that they did that. This is why Sweeney supports the new civil care court system, where a judge can order people into treatment even if they haven't committed a crime. But that's the exact reason many other people with mental illness oppose care court. Orlando Vera says if you want someone who's done nothing wrong to heal from illness— You don't drag them into a courtroom. It's not a place you resolve your emotions of how you feel. It is a very business-oriented environment. So I I do feel that this is not the place for it. But Vera knows that fight is over. The governor ordered the first care courts to open in October, with the rest of the state following next year. Our focus is how do we support those that are going through the system, which we are. We need to be their voice. Hello. Yeah, you as well. When I meet with the lawyers and judges and county clinicians tasked with standing up care court in Orange County, they also have concerns. We don't want to punish people. Orange County presiding judge Maria Hernandez says care court will look like her young adult court, where she often loses the black robe and comes down off the bench to work with people eye to eye. Well, let me first go ahead and call the matter of 20 CF. Today, three young men are graduating from the Young Adult Diversion Program. They did two years of job training, school, and therapy instead of jail time. All right, then the court will now formally dismiss all counts and congratulate Mr. Garcia, who is also a felony. Judge Hernandez is so, like, she's so awesome. Abraham is 25 now. He graduated from young adult court a few years ago and had his felony record expunged, which is why we're not sharing his last name. Like, I don't even look at her as a judge. She's just like a, you look at her like as a mom figure. Even if care court is overseen by a caring judge, clinicians still question whether it will even work. Orange County Director of Behavioral Health Veronica Kelly says care court is the latest brainchild of politicians, not professionals. So we end up building like the Winchester Mystery House. A hundred-year-old mansion in San Jose, famous for its maze-like layout. It is a, a structure that was okay, but then it just started adding hallways to nowhere and basements that are on top of the building. And that's what our system looks like. Do you think care court is a hallway to nowhere? 
I think it is a hallway that I'm going to, at the end, construct a door that opens out to a bunch of different options. Kelly says she's determined to create a model of the program that, in her words, won't be a colossal waste of money and won't destroy the people it's intended to serve. To do that, her team has to strike a delicate balance, how to convince people to accept treatment before Care Court can force them into it. For NPR News, I'm April Domboski in Orange County, California. And this story comes from NPR's partnership with KQED and KFF Health News. Well, I guess we can say mission accomplished. NASA sent OSIRIS-REx into space to land on an asteroid and return with a sample of it. A container full of asteroid stuff landed in Utah yesterday. And here to tell us more about it is Jessica Barnes, a co-investigator on the OSIRIS-REx mission and a research team lead. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Okay, so how did it feel to see OSIRIS-REx land? Oh, such relief, excitement. I, I'm still on cloud nine. I can't, I can't quite believe that it's happened, that we're here and keep having to pinch myself. It's very exciting <laughs> for the whole team. All right. So were there any concerns on reentry? I mean, there are always concerns, things mm-hmm. that certain marks that we have to hit on point to, to get us from space to, to our surface. For me, the the terrifying moment, well, there were two. One was yeah. coming through the atmosphere. Um, it gets very hot. There's a lot of friction. And so, you know, the, the sample return capsule has to withstand that for it to reach the surface. And it did. So that was great. <laughs> and then the, the, the final, for me, kind of relief moment was not it actually landing on the surface. It was the parachute opening. Because oh. once that main parachute opened, uh, we knew that the capsule was going to land safely. Wow. Um, So explain to us why this particular asteroid is so special scientifically. Well, there are many reasons. So uh, Bennu is one of millions of asteroids that we know of. Mm -hmm. It's the right size to be orbited by a spacecraft like OSIRIS-REx and large enough, but not too big, that we could touch the surface and back away safely. But I think it's also important to know that Bennu has a non-zero chance of impacting Earth. It's one of these near-Earth asteroids that we term a hazardous asteroid because someday in the future it could impact Earth, not when any of us will be around to see it. it if it happens, it would be in a couple of hundred years' time. Oh, um, not that long from now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's why we want to go out and study these near-Earth asteroids so that we can enhance our planetary defense capabilities. Yeah, planetary so, defense. <laughs> you yeah. say that non-ironically. This is a real thing. Yeah. No, exactly. NASA's, NASA and other space agencies are very interested in planetary defense. Mm, okay. What is the most burning question that I guess we all have that our planet has looking at those contents? Oh, I think that that answer might vary depending on which science team member you're talking to. But since Mm -hmm. you're talking to me, (laughs) the one I'm most interested in is um, a lot of my research focuses on understanding where water in our solar system came from, how it was distributed early on, how Earth became habitable. And so for me, it'll be looking at what its water content and isotopic composition is and how that compares to what we know about meteorites. Were objects like Bennu delivering water to the inner solar system and possibly Earth uh, when Earth was forming and evolving very early on? So cool. 
That is Jessica Barnes, an assistant professor at the University of Arizona and co-investigator of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from United Airlines, committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 without relying on carbon offsets. Learn more at united.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is WBUR. Cloudy, windy, dreary weather into the evening. Clouds continue tonight. Some strong wind gusts, about 56 for a low. Tomorrow, any sunshine we get should be meager. Mostly cloudy skies, barely budging above 60. Looks as if we're sticking to the 60s for most of the week, even as the sunshine reappears on Wednesday and then for possibly Thursday as well. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's set to be a big week in Washington as Congress careers toward a shutdown. Republicans in the House cannot agree on a plan to fund federal agencies beyond September 30th. As many as 4 million workers could lose pay as a result, about half of whom are military troops and personnel. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, writers are set to vote on a new contract to end a nearly five-month strike against the studios. No word yet on when TV shows and films might resume production. There's been an increase in the number of police officers being held accountable for killing people in the line of duty. The threshold, I think, for charging an officer has most definitely changed over the last four or five years. But experts say these cases are still relatively rare. A closer look at the numbers coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Democratic Senator Bob Menendez is rejecting calls. He stepped down after nearly half a million dollars in cash and tens of thousands more in gold bars was found in his home. Menendez predicting he'll prevail in federal court in his bribery case. I recognize uh, this will be the biggest fight uh, yet, but as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, 
but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. According to an indictment, Menendez took cash, gold, and a luxury car in exchange for using his position as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to help Egypt and New Jersey business associates. Menendez has held office for nearly five decades. He was cleared in a previous bribery case in 2017 when jurors could not reach a unanimous decision. The gunman who carried out a racially motivated mass shooting at a Walmart in El Paso is agreeing to pay victims' families more than $5 million. There in Montessa, member station KTEP has more. A federal judge signed off on the amount of restitution today. Patrick Cousy has pleaded guilty to murder and hate crimes in federal court in February. He killed 23 people and wounded more than a dozen in 2019. The then 21-year-old drove more than 600 miles from the Dallas area to target Hispanic shoppers in El Paso. Crucius was sentenced to 90 consecutive life terms in federal prison. He faces the death penalty in Texas. A hearing to schedule that trial is set for this afternoon. I'm Aaron Montes in El Paso. France is pulling its ambassador and 1,500 troops out of the African country of Niger after a coup there. Two months ago, NPR's owner Beardsley reports it's a blow for French diplomacy. At first, France held on, saying it did not recognize Niger's anti-French junta, but things became too difficult. The French ambassador could no longer leave the embassy. French soldiers could no longer venture off their base. Macron announced on TV that France would pull out of its former colony, but reminded viewers it had been invited at one time into Niger and other countries in the region. We were asked to come and help fight terrorism, said Macron. We had soldiers die in the Sahel to keep the jihadists from taking over. Anti-French coups in Mali and Burkina Faso in the last couple of years have also pushed out French troops and ended French influence. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A tentative deal between Hollywood writers and the studios has been hammered out, heralding the possible end to a nearly five-month-old strike. The agreement, which still has to be ratified by striking members, is raising hopes a crippling strike that a shutdown movie and TV filming could be nearing an end. Or even if 11,000 writers approve the deal, the union representing upwards of 150,000 actors remains on strike. Stocks closed modestly higher in Wall Street today. The Dow was up 43 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Climate and transit advocate Mary Skelton Roberts will represent the city of Boston on the MBTA board. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu announced the appointment to the newly created seat earlier today. Skelton Roberts currently serves as senior advisor to the Climate Beacon Project. That's a local nonprofit focused on green energy. Mayor Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston that Roberts' background will serve her well on the post. She's been involved with the city's transportation planning in the past and uh, really just brings a lens of not only that policy expertise, but also to this day remains someone who's deeply embedded in the transit community as a rider. Skelton Roberts is a frequent rider on the bus and on the Orange Line. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll is temporarily leading the state. Governor Maura Healy is in Quebec, Canada, taking part in the 44th Annual Conference with New England governors and Eastern Canadian premiers to talk about their shared interests. The new COVID booster vaccine is also now available across New England. One of the first places giving them out was the Biggie in West Springfield this weekend. Jenny Ahrens reports the vaccination drive brought in medical professionals from around the country. Josh Bose is a pharmacist from Kentucky who spent several days at the Big E reminding folks why the COVID-19 vaccine should still be a priority. This XBB 1.5 variant, as it is circulating, it's shown to be more transmissible than previous variants. 
He says it's important to maintain vaccine efforts to prevent going back to the dark days of the pandemic when hospitals were overrun with patients. The countermeasures are only good if they actually uh, end up in someone's arm. In addition to the COVID vaccine, the clinic in front of the New England Grange building is offering free vaccines for the flu and RSV during the Big E, which runs through October 1st. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jenny Ahrens. Clouds press on into the evening and tomorrow, too. Overnight lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow's high is only about 61. Cloud cover should lift for Wednesday with mainly sunny skies due in for midweek. It's now down to 59 degrees at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Striking auto workers, a Republican presidential debate, a looming government shutdown, and impeachment. There is a lot going on in politics this week, and there is a lot at stake for the economy and the basic functioning of the federal government. So we have invited NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales and NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez to walk us through what to expect this week. Hey to both of you. Hey, Hi there. All right, Franco, let's start with you. So President Biden is traveling to Detroit tomorrow where he's going to be joining auto workers on the picket line. This this is a big political move for him, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, it appears to be the first time that a sitting president has walked a picket line. You know, Biden likes to call himself the most pro-union president ever. Mm-hmm. But really, until a few weeks ago, he had been relatively quiet on the negotiations between the United Auto Workers and the big three auto companies. But he came out very strongly on the side of the union once the strike began. And this trip, as you said, has turned into a big political event with implications for 2024. Biden is going to Detroit a day before former President Donald Trump plans to travel there to also meet with union workers. And now we don't know the entire scope of Trump's visit, such as whether he'll meet with workers or if he'll join the picket line. But it does go to show how important these blue-collar union workers are to both campaigns. I mean, I'll just note that Biden didn't join the picket lines in Hollywood and the strikes involving the writers and screenwriters, though he did applaud the deal. Well, also, let's remind everybody that Trump is going to be skipping the Republican debate yet again to be in Detroit, right? Yeah. I mean, it's another example of how Trump is looking beyond the Republican primaries and focusing more and more attention on Biden. Trump is looking more and more likely to be the Republican nominee for president or for the Republican Party. And he doesn't want to leave any political oxygen for those rivals. So this trip to Michigan is a bit of of counter-programming for the debate. I mean, just today at a rally in South Carolina, he told Mm -hmm. Republicans that they shouldn't waste their time watching debates with candidates who are so far behind them. And they are. I mean, it's not unlike last debate where Trump scheduled an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. I mean, he's really just not going to give them any room. He's going to keep all the focus on his campaign as much as he can. Yeah. All right. Well, over to you, Claudia. We are just, what, a little more than five days away from Mm -hmm. seeing a lapse in funding for the government. Is a shutdown inevitable at this point? 
It could be. Congress was largely gone for the weekend, and they're not due to return until tomorrow. Now, some House Republicans met on Capitol Hill over the weekend, but it was to work on a separate focus on permanent funding. This is not even for temporary stopgap funding that would keep the government open past Sunday. So that's going to be a challenge there in terms of trying to beat this deadline. The Senate, however, is trying to see if they can look at some sort of legislative vehicle, see if they can break up what we're seeing as a stalemate in the House with Republicans struggling to come to agreement to find some sort of temporary measure to keep the government open and avoid this government shutdown. There's differences, though, how long this temporary funding should go, if it's if it's several weeks or longer. And there's debate over whether there should be new aid for Ukraine, as well as for public disasters that we've seen stretching from Maui in Hawaii to Vermont. Right. I feel like we keep seeing this movie over and over again, right. a looming government shutdown. So among lawmakers, who is leading things at this point? Is anyone in charge? That is a great question. Maybe we find out by the end of the week. Now, (laughs) the Republican-led House has tried to take the lead, but this past week we saw them fumble over and over again, just trying to find consensus within their own party for a partisan bill to keep the government open. Meanwhile, the Senate is looking if they should try and take the lead here, try and force legislation to the House, a bipartisan bill, if they can find that agreement in time before the shutdown, and force a vote in the House. But this is going to test, for example, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his role in his party with challenges to the decisions he could make here. For example, if he would take up a bipartisan temporary stopgap measure. So these are a lot of steps and not enough time. Exactly. Meanwhile, a lot of other things are happening in Congress, like House Republicans will be holding their first hearing in their impeachment inquiry of President Biden. What can we expect from that? Right. This is going to be our first opportunity to get a sense where this impeachment inquiry could go. It's being led by the House Oversight Committee. Chairman Jim Comer in that panel will lead that Thursday hearing. It's titled The Basis for an Impeachment Inquiry for the President. Now, this is tied to Hunter Biden and his business dealings. And Republicans have repeatedly tried to allege that President Biden had some sort of wrongdoing tied to this. They have not been able to prove this. So this will be our first look to see if they have anything new to show for these claims. And Franco, just to stay on impeachment here, how is the White House responding to this inquiry so far? I mean, they're fighting back and doing so in stronger ways than they have before. I mean, Biden has largely tried to stay out of the fray when it came to allegations involving his son, Hunter. But now that it's an impeachment inquiry, you know, the White House is pressing back. You know, they're calling it extreme politics at its worst. And they've assembled a team of experts, lawyers, and press gurus to defend the president. And we're really seeing that in the coordinated response to the accusations and how they're trying to turn the Republican allegations, in many cases, to their own political advantage. That is NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez and NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thank you much. 
This fall, a number of police officers are on trial, accused of killing people in the line of duty. Three in Colorado, another three in Washington state, and more trials are looming as five officers in Memphis have been charged with second-degree murder for the beating death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. For years, the Black Lives Matter movement demanded that more police be prosecuted after such deaths. And, as NPR's Martin Costi reports, some think that may now be happening. Elaine Simons believes things are changing. In 2019, a former foster child of hers, a young man named Jesse Saray, was shot to death in a struggle with a police officer in Auburn, Washington. At first, she says the criminal justice system responded slowly. It wasn't until the murder of George Floyd in 2020 that it became a catalyst. Something woke up the world. After George Floyd, the officer who shot Simon's foster son was charged with second-degree murder and assault. Simon's is waiting for the trial to start, probably early next year. It does something to your spirit, you know? We want resolution. In the meantime, she's planning to watch the trial of three other cops charged with murder or manslaughter in an unrelated death in nearby Tacoma. She also stays in touch with families of other people killed by police. She just came back from New York, where she met the mother of Eric Garner, His death in 2014 sparked protests, especially when the officer who wrestled him to the ground was not criminally charged. Now, Simon says families like Garner's are seeing what she calls a glimmer of hope. Because they're starting to see in different states, charges are starting to go forward, and that resolution is starting to look like almost a reality for a lot of people. But if you look at national numbers, it's not clear that things have changed that much. Criminologist Philip Stinson has been counting the number of state and local officers charged with murder or manslaughter for on-duty shootings every year since 2005. Well, it certainly it goes up after about 2014, but it's just a few cases. We go from maybe 8 or 9 or 15 to 15 or 20 instead. In other words, the number of cops charged for shooting deaths has gone from single digits a decade ago to low double digits now. And in the years where we have seen increases in terms of the numbers of officers charged, what we have noticed is that quite often that's a result of several officers being charged out of the same criminal incident. So it makes it look like there's more going on there. Instead of counting how many cops have been charged, you could count deaths and see how many of those lead to charges. That's how the Mapping Police Violence Project does it. The founder is Samuel Sinyangwe. He says the percentage of deaths that lead to criminal charges has been holding steady, between 1% and 3%. Though there may be some lag time in his stats. There are cases where prosecutors will charge an officer you know, many months or even a year after the case. And so you know, the numbers for more recent years might go up slightly. One reason to think that the numbers might go up is that in some places the laws have changed. Washington state, for instance, lowered the bar for convicting an officer. It's no longer necessary to prove, quote, actual malice. California tightened the rules for when cops may use deadly force. And Colorado made it a crime for an officer to fail to intervene when another one uses excessive force. The threshold, I think, for charging an officer has most definitely changed over the last four or five years. Ted Buck is an attorney who defends police in civil actions in Washington state. He doesn't do many criminal cases for police because he says those are still relatively rare. And he doesn't expect criminal prosecutions to increase much either, despite that lower legal threshold. In part, he says this is because of all the video evidence that we have now. 
Yes, it's true, he says, that video sometimes makes the case against an officer. But that same huge amount of evidence that is now available through video footage is also being looked at in all these other cases. And it's leading prosecutors to decide not to charge. And Buck thinks that's as it should be. Both he and criminologist Philip Stinson agree that the prosecution numbers are basically static right now. But while Buck believes that's because most police do the right thing, Stinson sees it as evidence that prosecutors are still hesitant to go after cops and that juries are still reluctant to convict them. Martin Costi, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a new study finds the public has varying views of what is and is not an abortion. Traders on Wall Street started off the week with some gains. The Dow picked up just over a tenth of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq both pulled in about four-tenths of a percent. Attorneys General in New York and Pennsylvania are suing the founder of a Boston-based travel company after it went out of business this summer. The officials are suing Vantage Travel founder Hank Lewis personally for $108 million on behalf of customers whose trips they say never took place because the company had shut down. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell sued Vantage while it was still in business. That resulted in settlements totaling less than $200,000. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. What happens when fashion designers and scientists work together? Find out on September 30th when Boston Fashion Week teams up with Cambridge Science Festival to bring you the future of fashion, workshops, demonstrations, and a breathtaking runway experience. CambridgeSciencefestival.org. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Pretty windy out there. Could have some strong gusts overnight tonight. Lots of clouds around. Lows in the mid-50s. Clouds should stick around for tomorrow. A few breaks here and there for sunshine. Another chilly day tomorrow. Temperatures about 61 degrees. Sky should start to clear for Wednesday. Sun could break through during the day up in the mid-60s, and then the sunshine should return for the rest of the week. 59 degrees now in Boston at 520. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com and Boston Ballet's Fall Experience featuring four dynamic ballets on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. France is pulling its ambassador and 1,500 troops out of the West African country Niger. Niger is a former French colony, and for years, French forces have helped fight jihadist movements from there in the Sahel region of Africa. But Niger is not the first Francophone country in Africa to demand the departure of French troops. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley is watching all this from Paris. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So let's start with what's happening and why is France leaving now? This has to do with the the coup over the summer? Absolutely. Um, The coup leaders who took over in July, uh, the new junta is very anti-French and they asked France to leave. For a while, President Emmanuel Macron said, no, you're a legitimate government. We will stay. But it became impossible. The ambassador couldn't even leave the embassy. So last night he said on TV, he's pulling out the ambassador and the 1500 troops. And he also said this. He said, we're in Niger because we were invited by Niger and several other countries in the region to come help fight terrorism. We had soldiers die in the Sahel to keep jihadists from taking over many places. So he said they had a legitimate reason for being there, but there was a coup and France couldn't do anything about that. I want to try to tie together two things we just learned. One is, you said this new junta is very anti-French. The other thing, as I said as I was introducing you, Niger is not the first Francophone country to expel French troops in these last few years. Does this speak to rising anti-French sentiment more broadly on the continent? Yes, in some of those places it does. Uh, In Mali, Burkina Faso, and in Niger, Anti-French coups have happened. The new hunters have expelled the French. There's a number of factors fanning that anti-French sentiment. It's partly the post-colonial legacy. Those were all French colonies. And since their independence in the 1960s, France has stayed involved with them. But the involvement wasn't always so straightforward as it is today. You know, French leaders actually received suitcases of money and even diamonds to sort of support some of these African dictators. So there are bad feelings from that. And there's anti-French sentiment to be exploited. And the French are kind of blamed for things. And there's also Russia. Uh. Um, Russia is whipping up anti-French sentiment. And for example, Mali's ruling junta, their security is Wagner, the mercenary, the Russian mercenaries, who is now in there. And there are huge disinformation campaigns. And Mary Louise, listen to this. That is a video that is going around Africa. Those are like zombie French soldiers saying, we are Macron's demons, we are coming back to conquer Africa. And these are the kind of things that are on African social media. And it's working. Hmm. Um, I spoke with Thierry Vircoulon, who is with the French Institute of International Affairs. He specializes in disinformation in Africa. And here's what he told me. Russia has used these uh, competencies in manipulating uh, the social networks, like they did in America, uh, very much in Africa. So interesting. Eleanor, just step back for a second. You're, you're talking to us from Paris. How do people in France say this? Their ambassador, their troops uh, leaving the region, coming home? Well... President Macron seemed stunned when all this happened in July. And last night, he seemed very much regretful of what he had to announce. And it's a huge blow to France and its diplomatic power and presence in Africa. And Mary Louise, it actually affects the U.S. too, which relied on the French army in West Africa and the Sahel to help in the fight against extremism. So it has very wide repercussions. As for the French people, it's it's kind of remote. I think they're probably not so much concerned, but they have been watching on TV footage of crowds in these countries, you know, with anti-French slogans, France, get out, down with France, waving Russian flags, and it's all very surreal. 
That is NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reporting from Paris. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Mary Louise. After more than a decade playing shows on the road, DJ and composer Laurel Halo began to feel like everywhere was becoming nowhere. The feeling of everywhere becoming nowhere one can experience when spending time in airports, on planes, on trains, taxis, in hotels, in venues, becoming this atomized object rather than, you know, being able to feel the sort of fundamental resonances of a city. And to put that feeling into music, Laurel Halo turned away from the techno and towards the experimental. Her new album, called Atlas, is a tapestry of slowly evolving textures, and it was inspired by the nighttime imagery of cities she visited while out on the road. Anytime I start working on a record, I like having palettes of mood and texture that I want to try and go for with the music, just to have a sort of roadmap. And I had these various sets of nighttime imagery, because often when you are touring and traveling as a musician, you experience cities at night. Imagery that you see perhaps when you've gotten off of a long shift at work and it's night and it's pouring rain and a car goes by and you see the reflection of the headlights in the wet pavement or you see steam coming out of portholes. The original inroads for these tracks were either ambient beds created with a synth and sound design, or it was a series of piano sketches. It was a additive process and one also of, you know, transformation, turning a piano loop into um, something that became a sort of, you know, undulating wave-like element on top of which I would improvise further piano on top or improvise, you know, violin or guitar, or vibraphone. Of course, certain types of music, such as club music, you do want a desired outcome, which is to make people move. You want to come into conversation with the audience you want to see how they're reacting to the music, and you want to respond in kind with what you choose to play. The best DJ gigs are ones where the audience is right next to you, so you can see an immediate reaction, and you can see how bodies are moving. I think when creating music that is more ambient or beatless or contemplative in nature, you're not necessarily thinking about dancing first and foremost. It is about slower movement, so this should be a record for people to walk around to, or drive in their cars, or reflect, or just be comfortably by themselves. I thought this would be really beautiful to make something kind of psychedelic and murky and a bit unsettling, but more than anything, a deep and peaceful listen, or a restorative listen.
That was DJ and composer Laurel Halo. Her new album is called Atlas. This is NPR News. Thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. For the first time, a healthcare foundation in Florida is investing in efforts to curb gun violence. That story is in about 20 minutes on WBUR. And tomorrow, a local chapter of the National Magicians Magician Society is facing a shortage of members, so they're recruiting disappearing musicians. Tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy on 90.9 WBUR. Listen again when you wake up. A lovely evening, chilly, windy, and soggy. It's already 59 degrees out there. Should fall just a few degrees overnight tonight. Then tomorrow, cloudy skies, high temperatures about 61. Sunshine moves in for Wednesday. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. We also help make sense of an increasingly complex world. We foster understanding, build community, and when we can, we spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future's not a given. Giving monthly, it is key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing mounting pressure to pass a short-term spending bill ahead of a critical deadline this week. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre is taking aim at a group of far-right House Republicans who are threatening to derail any attempt to get a deal across the finish line by the end of the week. House Republicans' chaos continues to march us toward an extreme Republican shutdown. The Republican hardliners are pushing for deeper cuts in the budget and have proposed a series of border security provisions. The proposal has no support from Democrats in the House or Senate who have called it a non-starter. Ukraine's president says his forces are ready to use powerful U.S. tanks that have arrived in the country. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports that Ukraine is trying to recapture as much Russian-occupied territory as possible before winter sets in. Writing on social media, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the powerful Abrams battle tanks from the U.S. will help reinforce his country's military brigades. He did not specify how many tanks had arrived in Ukraine or exactly when they would be deployed. At the beginning of the year, the U.S. had promised Ukraine 31 Abrams tanks paired with armor-piercing depleted uranium rounds. The tanks are expected to be used in the counteroffensive that started in June. But Kirilo Budanov, who leads Ukraine's military intelligence, told an American military website that the tanks must be used for, quote, specific, well-crafted operations to avoid being destroyed. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks closed higher today on Wall Street. The Dow was up 43 points. The Nasdaq Composite up 59. This is NPR News in Washington. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is giving the MBTA low marks on its performance. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, she pointed to the T's slow zones and 20-minute gaps between trains as reasons for the grade. She says the T is providing the bare minimum level of service. We are in a very, very dire place just in terms of service delivery. We are far from having a system that is barely adequate for the needs of a world-class um, economic engine and hub for our workforce. Mayor Wu says she hopes to see changes, including extending the orange line and connecting the red and blue lines in the future. The MBTA in the city of Boston will soon finish creating permanent shared bus bike lanes on Huntington Avenue. The MBTA says the study shows an initial phase of striping on a mile-long portion of the road has already saved riders up to two minutes per trip during the evening and morning rush hours. Crews will be finishing painting the lanes with more red paint this season. And the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center ranks near the bottom of convention centers in the country. That's according to a recent Wall Street Journal ranking of the 30 largest convention centers in the U.S. WBUR's Inninshore and Wameka has more. The rankings were mostly weighted toward the size and quality of the convention center. Some other factors include the vibrancy of the city, affordability, food costs, weather, and walkability. Overall, Boston ranked 24th out of 30. Convention centers in Las Vegas, Chicago, San Diego, and Orlando topped the list. But the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center did get high marks in certain categories. The convention center ranked in the top five for hotel availability and in the top ten for restaurant availability. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The National Science Foundation has tapped Worcester Polytechnic Institute to contribute to wildfire research. The school will join the Federal Wildfire Interdisciplinary Research Center and receive a $450,000 grant. WPI will partner with San Jose State University to study new fire detection methods, robotics technologies, to assist first responder safety and fire suppression systems. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Cloudy tonight, overnight lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow's high is only about 61, lots of clouds tomorrow, and we should see some sunshine for midweek on Wednesday, rising to just about the mid 60s. 60 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Hollywood got a round of applause from the White House today as President Biden celebrated news that the Writers Guild of America has reached a tentative deal with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, possibly ending their historic strike. Biden called the agreement a testament to the power of collective bargaining. Still A lot of questions, though, about the agreement itself and when TV shows and films might resume production, especially for daytime and late-night TV. And, of course, the union representing Hollywood actors, SAG-AFTRA, remains on strike. Well, here to answer some of the questions raised by this new tentative agreement is our TV critic and media analyst, Eric Deggins. Hey there. Hi. Okay, so neither side has revealed details yet that I have seen. There's still some hoops they have to jump through. What's left to be done? Well, the Writers Guild kind of laid out this process in a note that's on its website to its members. Basically, the leadership of the WGA has to vote to present the agreement to its full membership of more than 11,500 people for ratification. Now, that leadership vote is expected on Tuesday. Once that happens, they'll reveal the details of the agreement to their membership and presumably to the press and the public. And after all that happens, then the leadership may also vote to lift the restraining order and end the strike at a certain day or time. Now, that could allow WGA members to return to work even before the agreement is ratified by the full membership. Uh, Okay. But let me focus on the timing. If, If the WGA were to officially end its strike on Tuesday... Would that open the door for at least some shows, like daytime talk shows or late-night TV shows? They could come back quickly, right? That is certainly the hope of a lot of people across Hollywood. I mean, you might recall that talk shows like The Drew Barrymore Show and Real Time with Bill Maher had announced plans to return to new episodes last week, but they wound up standing down amid a significant backlash. Now, the trade magazine Variety published a story on Sunday night that quoted unnamed producers saying that late-night TV shows, which suspended their production when the strike started about 146 days ago, they might come back as soon as next week. That's because the hosts of these shows aren't covered by the actor strike, though you probably won't see performers appearing on talk shows to push major movies or TV shows until the actor strike is also settled. And I'm also hearing the Drew Barrymore show is hoping to come back next month as well. Okay. And I'm remembering, you know, we're talking about the late night hosts that five of the biggest ones had this podcast. They were trying to raise money for their staffs. Have they said anything about when they might come back? So far, people from late night shows like The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon or The Late Show with Stephen Colbert haven't said much of anything publicly since the tentative agreement was announced. I think a lot of the details on how these shows might come back depends on whether the WGA allows members to work before the agreement is fully ratified by its membership and how the Writers Guild will support the actors still on strike. I mean, can WGA members cross a SAG picket line to work? Yeah. I think there's hope that the WGA leadership will issue some guidance on these questions after it votes on Tuesday. And before I let you go, Eric, what about all the other TV shows, dramas and comedies, all the scripted programs? Do we know when they might come back? I think that's going to be a longer process because the actors who star in those shows are still on strike. I think the hope is that the WGA agreement would provide a strong starting point for negotiations with the actors. But I think that's going to be tough to judge until we learn specifically what the writers' union agreed to and whether its membership is going to ratify that deal. 
And we may see more tomorrow. NPR TV critic and media analyst Eric Deggins. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Abortion is talked about a lot in hospitals, courts, legislatures, and the media. But it turns out the public doesn't really agree on what the word means, according to a new study shared exclusively with NPR. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has more. The study was done by a team at the Guttmacher Institute, a group that supports abortion rights. What the researchers did was lay out vignettes of different people experiencing different things in their pregnancies and then asked, is this an abortion? Yes, no, or maybe. Our biggest takeaway is that people do not hold sort of a shared standard definition of what is and isn't an abortion. That is the study's lead author, Alicia Vandevussi. We found that there's a lot of nuance and ambiguity in sort of how people are thinking about these issues and understanding these issues. I mean, basically, there is no scenario in which everyone was like, that's it. That's an abortion. No, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, we had a card that said had a surgical abortion um, and 67% of respondents said, yes, that's an abortion. And 8% said maybe, but 25% said no. To give you an idea of some of the scenarios people were thinking through, here's one of the vignettes posed in the study. Person G is 12 weeks pregnant. When they have their first ultrasound, there's no cardiac activity. So someone's pregnant, they go to a prenatal appointment, and the doctor says there's no heartbeat. The vignette continues. Their doctor recommends having the fetus removed. Person G has a surgical procedure to remove the fetus. What do you think? Abortion? Not abortion? We considered that a sort of miscarriage intervention. Two-thirds of the survey respondents agreed it was not an abortion, but a third said it was an abortion. The other vignettes described things like people taking emergency contraception or getting abortion pills through the mail or having an abortion after discovering a fetal anomaly. Vandevasi says intent was key when respondents were thinking through these scenarios. When people were talking about emergency contraception the, the day after um, intercourse, we had folks who were saying, well, they wanted to end their pregnancy, so it's an abortion, even if they're not pregnant. She says many respondents seemed unsure about how pregnancy works and how complications can unfold. We don't speak openly about a lot of reproductive experiences, particularly abortion, but also miscarriage. I mean, these are both stigmatized and very personal experiences. And so I do think that that is in large part why people, yeah, they may have been encountering these situations for the first time or considering them for the first time. This isn't just an academic discussion. What counts as an abortion has huge implications for abortion restrictions and what kind of reproductive care is swept up in those laws. I think it's really important research. Ushma Upadhyay was not involved in the study. She's a professor and public health scientist at the University of California, San Francisco. It sheds light on how important these terms are and how important it is for the public to have better knowledge about these issues that are constantly in our media, constantly being discussed in policy. And policymakers are making these decisions and probably have very similar uh, misunderstandings and lack of understanding. Upadhyay thinks clear terms and definitions can help. She recently published a statement on abortion nomenclature, which was endorsed by ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Meanwhile, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists recently came out with its own glossary of terms, suggesting, for example, that people don't say abortion at all and instead say intentional feticide. 
One key point about this Guttmacher study on the public's varying views on what counts as an abortion, the research was conducted in 2020, before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It's possible that in the time since the legal and political picture changed so dramatically, the public understands more about reproductive health now. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Norovirus is a terrible thing to have. It is very contagious and can lead to serious dehydration. It's often associated with cruise ships and daycares and other tightly confined spaces, but it has also been cropping up in the wilderness. NPR's Pink Huang reports on an outbreak on a popular West Coast trail. Late last summer, Kevin Quinn hiked through a remote, mountainous region in central Washington state. He was headed towards Canada on the Pacific Crest Trail when he started feeling sick. And at first I thought it was just a stomach ache. But when we got to the campsite, I started throwing up. Quinn was on the Pacific Crest Trail with his daughter, who had left her job so they could hike together. It's a five-month, 2,600-mile trek from the Mexican border up to Canada. After months of hiking, Quinn found himself wiped out at a campsite in the middle of nowhere. You know, I had heard about the norovirus for years, but it was always in the context of, oh, there's a cruise ship in the Caribbean. You don't think about this as being an issue when you're out on the Pacific Crest Trail. But Quinn was one of many hikers last year that caught norovirus on the trail. Robert Henry volunteers at the Washington Alpine Club Lodge to the south. After a stream of sick hikers came through, he closed the lodge and emailed health authorities. My concern at the time was, A, to make sure that the hikers on trail didn't get any worse, and B, to make sure that the volunteers at the Washington Alpine Club didn't contract whatever it was. Aaron Hamlet is a disease detective with the CDC. He's based at the health department in Washington state, and when he heard about the outbreak, he surveyed hikers. He focused on a 70-mile stretch of the trail. One common rest stop was a log cabin in the meadows. At this area, there's also a pit latrine and a stream that's used for drinking water. Hamlet and his team hiked out to the cabin and tested water from the stream. They also swabbed the toilets, the door handles, the tabletops, anything people were touching. He says the water was clean. But every single swab did test positive for human fecal contamination. Shana Miko, a nurse epidemiologist at CDC, was part of the team, and this wasn't her first norovirus in the woods investigation. Last year, she traced an outbreak at the Grand Canyon among people who were backcountry hiking and whitewater rafting. She says these places may seem so remote, but thousands of people pass through in a season. A lot of germs can live on environmental surfaces for a long time, specifically norovirus. And with norovirus, hand sanitizer and water filters don't work. Miko says hikers can cut their risks. Always wash your hands with soap and water after you defecate and before you eat. Also, make sure to drink and cook with good clean water. Boiling is gonna be the best way to kill everything. There are also combinations of water filtering and UV light and chemical treatment that can work. Kevin Quinn thinks he got norovirus because he broke his own rule. We were told not to drink from the standing water, and I did the one time. He was thirsty, he was tired, and soon he knew he'd made a mistake. After a night of being very ill, 
Quinn and his daughter made a long, slow trek out of the woods. We never made it. We never made the whole trail. When I called him a year later, he still regrets that he didn't take the time to treat the water properly. To other hikers, he says, heed the signs, wash your hands, and make sure your water is clean. In his experience, it is not worth the risk. Ping Huang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. One team has dominated Major League Baseball this year, and it's not the Sox. Fans of the Atlanta Braves are already in postseason spirit. That story is coming up about 20 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Masters in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders. Professional.brown.edu. No ball game at Soggy Fenway tonight, thankfully, but tomorrow the Sox welcome the recently fired Chaim Bloom's old team, the Tampa Bay Rays. Join us for a conversation about sustainable fashion a week from tonight, Monday, October 2nd at City Space. This is WBUR. If you're a newcomer to Boston or just a frequent traveler, there's a fair chance you pass through Logan International Airport in East Boston. But have you ever truly explored the neighborhood around Logan? It's time for a tip from our field guide to Boston. East Boston, or Eastie as locals call it, is an immigrant neighborhood to its core. For almost two centuries, first-generation Americans have made it home. And today, Latinos from Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala make East Boston one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the city. A tip from locals. Make sure you go get a pupusa, the melty, cheesy, doughy Salvadoran staple, at 2 Metapon on Bennington Street. To get more familiar with what makes Boston's communities unique, check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. In Miami, violence intervention workers regularly visit neighborhoods prone to shootouts. The group, called the Peacemakers, wants to steer people away from using guns. It already has financial support from the U.S. Department of Justice. And now, a local health foundation has started funding their work because violence reduction is part of community well-being. From member station WLRN, Veronica Saragovia reports. The wall paint is peeling and plastic bottles dot the perimeter of a low-income housing complex in Miami called the Lincoln Fields. Shamika Pierce has a delivery of diapers for a family here. She works with a group called the Peacemakers. Hi, how are you? I brought you some pampers for your sisters. We have two packs of whites. And what you could do is you could just let your mom know that we'll supply more to her probably in the next week. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. As Pierce makes her rounds, Lamont Nanton walks with her. He manages the peacemakers and says they show up regularly, trying to figure out what people here need. If you plant the seeds now before something happens, when something happens, it's that much easier to engage and get involved because you're a familiar face. If you just show up on the scene after a shooting and they're not familiar with you, you're just like the police. Manton speaks from experience. He says he carried guns in his youth until mentors taught him he was bigger than that. 
this is my way of reconciling that life that I once lived and reach some other young folks that are heading down that same path and let them know that there is another way to live, there's another way to think. He and his team want to make Lincoln Fields a safer place to live. My son was a victim. Karen Roberson is a resident here. He was walking home one day and got shot just because we live in this area. But thank God he lived. People, they out here up to no good, game banging, game violence, and they just, I guess, target anybody. Roberson feels stuck at Lincoln Fields. She also grapples with a chronic mold problem. Miami, like cities across the U.S., lacks quality, affordable housing. But the peacemakers come to listen. The group is under the Circle of Brotherhood, a nonprofit led by Lyle Muhammad. The canvassing effort is almost like putting a caring hand over that neighborhood and that community for that day, letting them know what resources may be available. His nonprofit received a $290,000 grant from the Health Foundation of South Florida to grow the Peacemakers team to six full-time and one part-time employees. The Health Foundation had never funded gun violence intervention in its 30-year history. Then it heard from psychology professor Roger McIntosh. He studies the effects of stress on brain health at the University of Miami. McIntosh says people who lack resources tend to internalize the stress from their problems. You learn how to suppress as opposed to express emotions. And this obviously can lead to the buildup and the frustrations. Frustrations that people often can't resolve because they can't access expensive professional help. Instead, they grab a gun. Ready to draw and shoot because of that buildup. They don't necessarily know how to dispose of all that toxic stress. And that's the goal of the peacemakers, help with that toxic stress, something Olivia Eason, another peacemaker, knows about firsthand. Growing up in urban areas was hard. You know, it's hard mentally, physically, emotionally. All we're trying to do is build relationships and get our community the help and the resources that it needs. It's not easy work, and often done one person at a time. She approaches a man standing outside of his apartment. You've been okay, everything been, you know, quiet. You ever heard of the Circle of Brotherhood? They have a phenomenal group, men's group meeting on Tuesday nights at 6.30. One session will change your life. Right here, right on that call. Yes, sir. You see it? Right up the street. Through the health grant, the peacemakers will measure how many people they reach and the problems they encounter in hopes they can eventually make a difference in the level of violence this community experiences. For NPR News, I'm Veronica Saragovia in Miami. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WLRN and KFF Health News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Laura Karstensen. In 1974, when she was 21, Laura went to a concert with some co-workers. When it was over, they all piled into cars. For the ride home, she ended up in a van driven by a young man she did not know very well. It turned out he was intoxicated. And so we start driving on this country road, headed back to town, and he's weaving on the road. And I was asking him to slow down, and I remember putting my arm out on the dashboard to kind of brace. And then the next thing I remembered, 
Um, I was laying on the side of the road outside of the van. The van had gone on to roll down a, an embankment and I had apparently gone through the window. So I was laying on the side of the road and I, I can't really imagine what I must have looked like, but I must have been a fright. Th there would be so much blood because of all the, the breaks and, and the severing of my femur. And I don't know how long it was, but at some point a, a big semi truck pulls up on the side of the road and these two drivers came over and asked if they could help me. And I said, yeah, you know, I, and what I remember is they went back to the truck because I said I was so cold. I'm sure I was in shock and I was just shaking. And they came over and laid a blanket down on me. And again, I remember thinking at the time, oh, you're going to ruin your blanket because you'll get blood on it. And they said, it's fine. And they put the blanket over me. And I just remembered feeling so incredibly grateful. And um, I will never forget them. This is now 50 years ago. And I guess what I was touched by was that my being cold was the least of my troubles. <laughs> but they cared enough to try to help that short-term challenge that I was facing at the moment. You know, it was, a, it was a gentle, kind gesture. And I've always kept a blanket in my trunk ever since then, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Laura Karstensen lives in California. After the accident, she ended up staying in the hospital for four months. She's had years of medical complications since then, but today she is grateful to be walking. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple insurers side by side, including options that offer same day approval. Learn more at policygenius.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is 90.9 WBUR, a raw evening with a cool wind tonight falling to the mid-50s with overcast skies. Some winds kicking up tonight again. Then tomorrow, heavy on the clouds, limited sunshine, if any, only about 61 degrees tops. Could have a generally sunny day for a change on Wednesday, about 67. 58 degrees now in Boston at 559.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, presenting an evening of live comedy, film screenings, performance poetry, art installations, and more. Friday, September 30th, cambridgesciencefestival.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Striking Hollywood writers have reached a tentative deal with major studios after one of the longest strikes in history. The union won significant concessions from the major studios and streaming services, but what does the deal mean for the industry? It's Monday, September 25th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, U.S. Army recruiters are having a tough time getting people to sign up. Coming up, convincing young people to enlist. Right now we're not at war with anyone. Military doesn't mean war. It's great benefits. You get health insurance, dental insurance. More on the numerous challenges ahead. And the NFL has announced that R&B star Usher will headline Super Bowl 58's halftime show in February. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Screenwriters and Hollywood studios have reached a tentative three-year contract. NPR's Mandelito Barco reports the Writers Guild of America calls the deal exceptional with meaningful gains and protections for writers. Striking screenwriters gathered at a bar in North Hollywood to cheer for the NEGCOM, the negotiating committee that made a deal with the CEOs of Disney, Netflix, NBC Universal, and Warner Brothers Discovery. Until the writers vote to seal that deal, their nearly five-month-long strike continues. Writers Guild of America leaders encouraged them to support the striking actors union SAG-AFTRA on their picket lines. They've been on strike since July over similar concerns, streaming residuals and artificial intelligence. The double strikes ground Hollywood productions to a halt, but soon late-night and daytime talk shows could be back on the air. ABC says the new season of Dancing with the Stars will premiere tomorrow. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. President Biden met today at the White House with Pacific Island leaders as the U.S. continues to compete against Chinese influence in the region. President promising the U.S. will do more to help island nations mitigate the effects of climate change. We hear your calls for reassurance that you never, never, never will lose your statehood or membership of the UN as a result of a climate crisis. Today, the United States is making it clear that this is our position as well. Biden announced today the U.S. is establishing diplomatic relations with two more South Pacific islands, the Cook Islands and Niue. Former President Trump says Republicans should stop wasting their time on the GOP primary debates. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on Trump's latest efforts to unite Republicans behind his own campaign. The former president is increasingly turning his attention toward the general election. At a rally in South Carolina, he urged Republicans to spend less time and money on his Republican rivals and instead help him defeat Joe Biden in next year's presidential election. We're going up and we're the only ones going up. They're going down. They're going down, down, down. They ought to stop wasting their time. You know, they're wasting a lot of time on these ridiculous debates that nobody's watching. Trump's been paying less and less attention to his Republican rivals while escalating his attacks against Biden. He's leading his Republican rivals by 40 points in some polls. 
and he plans to skip this week's Republican debate in California and instead will meet with union workers in Detroit. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The number of Americans who say they have personally felt the effects of climate change has risen. New Associated Press Norwich Center poll finding 9 in 10 Americans saying they've experienced at least one extreme weather event in the past five years. That's up from around 79 percent just a few months ago. Modest gains on Wall Street today. The Dow rose 43 points to close at 34,006. The Nasdaq was up 59 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston now has a seat on the MBTA's board of directors. Mayor Michelle Wu has named her appointee for the volunteer position, a newly created slot, after weeks of evaluating public nominations. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. The mayor has tapped Boston resident Mary Skelton Roberts to represent the city on the T's board. Skelton Roberts serves on the governor's Latino Empowerment Council and works in clean energy. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, Wu said Skelton Roberts has a passion for improving public transportation and close ties with transit advocates. I have complete confidence that she is going to be off and running when it comes to the technical background and the expertise about transportation policy in particular and the MBTA. Skelton Roberts will attend her first board meeting this Thursday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Suspended Dighton Police Chief Sean Cronin plans to resign from his post at the end of the month. The select board shared the news this afternoon. Cronin was one of five men charged in connection with an insider trading scheme in June. The men were accused of trading stocks and options based on confidential information about a pharmaceutical company's acquisition. One of the other men charged in the scheme was a Dighton Reserve officer and vice president of Alexion Pharmaceuticals. The owner of a major natural gas pipeline that runs through Eastern Mass says it wants to expand the system to bring more natural gas to the region. The company says the project will increase energy reliability, but environmentalists say it flies in the face of the climate goals of many states in the region. Here's WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Enbridge, the fossil fuel company behind the proposal, says bringing more gas into the Northeast will reduce energy prices, create more stability on the grid, and help lower carbon emissions. Its logic there is that on really cold days, when power plants often rely on oil, they could bring gas instead. But Nathan Phillips, a climate activist and Boston University professor who studies natural gas infrastructure, says states in the region have better options for cleaner and more reliable sources of energy. He adds that he and other environmental advocates plan to fight this expansion project. We're mobilizing and we're going to pressure everywhere to put an end to this. Enbridge is expected to begin the federal permitting process in a few months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Workers at the Stellantis car manufacturing facility in Mansfield continue to strike. It's part of the ongoing job action by unionized factory workers against three American car makers. Brandon Mancia is the union's regional director. These plants are are constantly being threatened by uh, Stellantis to, to close, so they're fighting uh, for their survival. Longtime uh, factory employee in Mansfield, Justin Blanchard, says he's frustrated that the workers' sacrifices during tough financial times have not been recouped. We gave back wages. We gave back a lot of work rules on overtime and, and things like that to make it a lot cheaper for the company to help them get through the tough times. Typical corporate fashion, you know, 16 years later, we haven't gotten anything back. 
Workers in Mansfield have been striking since Friday. In the forecast, look out for puddles and ponding on the roads. It's wet out there with a chilly wind. Already it's 58 degrees in Boston. Should fall just a few more degrees overnight tonight. Then for tomorrow, cloudy skies, highs about 61. Sunshine moves in for Wednesday. This is WBUR. It's 608. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The Army is struggling to fill its ranks. Last year, it was 15,000 soldiers short. This year is better, but the Army is still expected to fall short of its recruiting goal. Two big reasons. The Army is in a war for talent, with a strong economy offering good jobs and good benefits. And COVID kept recruiters out of high schools, prime scouting locations. NPR's Tom Bowman and producer Lauren Hodges traveled to the Minnesota State Fair, where, amid those hawking corn dogs, fried pickles, and cheese curds, the Army is trying to sell itself. Staff Sergeant Joshua Spearman grips the metal bench and eyes the crowd through his dark, wraparound sunglasses. He's a brawny soldier in a black t-shirt, his left arm covered in tattoos. There's an endless flow. Families with strollers, couples with just one stuffed animals, elderly fairgoers in motorized wheelchairs. Soon he eyes his prey, a cluster of young men. You know what's good? Eating all the fair snacks, come work it off. I'm so serious, do the deadlift challenge. No pull up? Nothing? Ah. Win your girl a t shirt, man. It's like the ultimate fair story. Behind him, a small grass lot with a few pop up canopy tents, a pull up bar, some weights for deadlifts. A Humvee with its door open, all designed to lure in prospects. One of the college students, Andrew Magnuson, takes the bait. He's a hulking guy with a Minnesota t-shirt and a crown of reddish curls. He nails the deadlift. Two more. 19. 20. And gets an Army t-shirt, but the Army doesn't get him. It's not for me. I know that much. I don't know. I don't like fighting. And his friends, they're not buying it either. So have you guys ever thought about the Army? Not particularly. When someone says Army, what's the first thing that pops in your head? War. War. Sergeant Robert Petteron tries his best to make it sound like something they can fit into their lives with ease. There's a part-time option where you only do the Army one week in a month, two weeks during the summer. But we'll pay for the college. But even with the financial incentives, it doesn't stick. Does that sound like something you guys would like to get a little bit more information about? Uh, I might pass for now, but we might be back around. We'll, we'll see. Okay. What about you? I'll probably pass. What they're saying is echoed in Army surveys. The Army found that many don't want to join because they fear getting wounded or killed, even though the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are long over, or they just don't want to leave home. So the Army has come up with a new marketing technique with an old slogan. Be all you can be. 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 The Army is pushing personal development in a general sense of service to the nation, like helping the victims of floods or wildfires. As right now, we're not at war with anyone. Military doesn't mean war. It's great benefits. You get health insurance, dental insurance. So you just got to sit down and explain it to the 
to the younger generation. Would you ever join? I'm actually thinking about it, actually. Yeah? Yeah. The recruiter's ears perk up and he calls over someone to take her information. Thinking about joining? Yeah. That'd be awesome. Hey. Yes, sir. So she's thinking about joining. Oh, you're thinking about joining, huh? Yeah. Oh, how old are you? I'm 16. One senior officer tells NPR the Army is embarking on a high school blitz to find more recruits now that the pandemic is over. Still, officials expect the lagging recruiting climate will continue for some time. As a result, the Army will likely have to trim its forces in bases around the country. Not all those here are ready to join. That's because they're at least a decade away from recruiting age. A young boy works a handheld remote under the guidance of a recruiter. He maneuvers a small, tracked Army robot around a series of plastic highway cones, using a monitor to simulate what it's like to control these in the field. The boy is already a pro, because it's basically a video game. But even if you want to join the Army, you might not make the cut. A recent Pentagon study found less than one quarter of America's youth would qualify for military service without a waiver because they're overweight, have criminal records, or mental or physical health problems. So how are they trying to make up for those lost numbers? The Army is increasingly turning to those who recently arrived in the United States. The Army is also hiring more immigrant recruits, like Sergeant First Class Noella Laxon, whose family came from the Philippines. She's standing at a card table covered with brochures, lanyards, and dog tags. Most of my applicants are immigrants, because I kind of relate to them, you know, a lot of them. She'll tell them her own story to put them at ease. Also helpful that she's a woman. Majority of my applicants are females. <laughs> I tell them, like, are you going to have people tell you what, you what can you do or cannot do? About 16% of the Army is now female, a number that keeps edging up. Women tend to be higher quality recruits, score higher on tests, and have fewer brushes with the law. And now all ground combat jobs are open to women, so the Army is pushing that in some of its ads, including a woman spotting a target inside an Abrams tank. But all that leads to another hurdle to recruiting. Army surveys show some 20% of women questioned were wary of joining, saying they'll be discriminated against. Beyond that, sexual harassment and assault are still a persistent problem. Last year, the Army saw a 9% drop in reports of sexual assault, though the year earlier, there was a 26% increase in reports involving soldiers. But Lieutenant Colonel Kristen Grace, who commands all the recruiters, played that down. I've never experienced anything like that. Um, I've been fortunate, you know, not to experience anything like that. And Sergeant First Class Laxon says she never had a problem. For me personally, I've never experienced it. But it is a concern. One possible recruit, Harmony Cook, says her friends are worried about it when she talks about joining the military. They say, like, I'm going to be treated more differently from the guys or, um, like, the guys are going to be intimidating and everything and that I might not be able to stand a chance. But she wants to become a medic and get a $50,000 bonus. So far, Harmony is one of some 25 potential recruits here who have requested a formal interview. Another 750 have asked for more information. And while the Army is playing down combat to attract female recruits, that tough guy approach isn't totally going away. It just depends who's listening. Bro, you ever, you ever thought about joining me? Landon Arends is a college student from Iowa who said he's not interested in joining right now. Not at the moment. I'm, I'm in college. But Spearman reels him back in. I'm going to show you what, bro. Come back. Uh, 
Arendt wrestles at school and is pretty set on staying there. Spearman has an answer for that. I, I wrestle at Warburg College. So. But they don't pay you to wrestle. Yeah. Pretty much student loans. That and, sucks, man. Yeah. That sucks real bad. Yeah. I wrote a $214,000 check to a high school girl last year to go to Gustavus. Unlike the college kids we heard from earlier, Arendt wants to see some action on the battlefield. But when he thinks combat, he thinks the Marine Corps. Spearman brushes that aside. At three deployments with this special forces group, I've never seen a Marine out there fighting, man. Really? Yeah, they're a big force-on-force -force conflict type of type people, right? Yeah. Um, you want to be in the fight, man? Our Green Berets out there in the fight, our Army Rangers are out there in the fight. To seal the deal, Spearman pulls in a fellow recruiter. Right there, Captain Owen. Um, Captain Owen's actually Ranger Tab. Um, he is Ranger qualified. He's been the Ranger Assessment Selector Program. Um, and on top of being Ranger qualified, he's also a paratrooper, like myself, and he's an infantryman, right? So this could be your goal. In less than five minutes, Sergeant Spearman seems to have landed at least one more recruit. I got you on Instagram, bro. You got my number, man. Reach yeah. out, man. For real. Right. Let's make I'm a difference. Good. All right? All right. Take it easy, man. You guys have a good one. You too. All right, let's that Ranger tab off here real quick, sir. Tom Bowman, NPR News at the Minnesota State Fair. Major League Baseball's postseason is about to begin. All year long, one team has dominated, the Atlanta Braves. They've been leading the majors in homers, runs, and hits for most of the season. And as Peter Biello of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports, their fans are watching with a sense of awe. One night after a recent Braves win, fan Matt Dover waits outside Truist Park, where just hours before, Braves star right fielder Ronald Acuna Jr. hit two home runs. Bam! <laughs> My God, that thing got out in four and a half seconds. That thing was like a heat-seeking missile dead center. Dover believes Acuna is a lock for National League MVP. Recently, Acuna joined the 40-40 club, becoming the fifth player in Major League history to reach 40 homers and 40 stolen bases in a single season. The Braves have the best record overall and were the first to clinch a playoff spot. Best team in baseball, hands down. This year's Braves. 100%. Next to him, Jonathan Lang waves a red Braves jersey. It's covered in player signatures, and he's hoping to land a few more. He says first baseman Matt Olson has made this team special by setting his own record. Breaking Andrew Jones' single season home run record, 51. Olson also leads the majors in homers and RBIs. Collectively, the team has the best batting average in the majors. As for pitching, righty Spencer Strider leads in strikeouts and could win the Cy Young Award, baseball's top honor for pitchers. On the other side of the park, in a baseball-themed entertainment district known as the Battery, two women are dressed in Braves gear and elaborately decorated hats. We've got the feathers, all the colors of the Braves, um, just bringing the spirit. Jennifer Lemming believes it's also the team spirit that makes the difference. They're giving high fives, like after they make a play, you can tell there's just a lot of joy um, in what they're doing. Even, even when they're down, like they never give up. And she says that joy makes them fun to watch. The Braves have had a record number of sellout crowds at Truist Park this year. Chevy Clark from Atlanta came with friends. He says the Braves' stats are great, but it's really about the team's chemistry on the field. They all having fun. They remember that it's a game that we all used to play in our backyard with our pops, with our mom. They're throwing socks at us. We hitting the balls with plastic bats. You know, that's what it is at the end of the day. And he says remembering to have fun could take the Braves to another World Series. For NPR News, I'm Peter Biello in Atlanta.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Traders started off the week on Wall Street with gains. The Dow picked up just over a tenth of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ pulled in about four-tenths of a percent. Massachusetts insurance company Point32 Health says it will take more demographic data into account when tracking members' health conditions. The goal is to reduce health disparities based on where a customer lives and what race they are the social determinants of health. The Boston Business Journal reports that the so-called Social Inequality Index will allow the insurer to track patterns in disease, geography, demographics, and use of health care. Point 32 Health is the parent company of Tufts Health Plan and Harvard Pilgrim. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. bgsp.edu. The Atlantic's reporter Franklin Four comes to City Space Tuesday, October 3rd to talk about his new book chronicling the last two years of Joe Biden's presidency. Get your tickets at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Red Sox take the night off. They greet the Tampa Bay Rays at Fenway Park tomorrow night. Sox have lost their last six series. A damp evening commute. Not a lot of rain overnight tonight, but it should be windy and chilly. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds. Not too much sun, if any. Only about 61 tops. Could have a generally sunny day for a change on Wednesday, up around 67 degrees. It is 58 degrees in Boston at 621. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series with Jazz Along the Charles. Hear 25 bands play one set list along the Esplanade, October 7th, free to all. JazzAlongTheCharles.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After nearly 150 days, we have a deal. Tentatively, that could end one of the two labor strikes that have brought Hollywood to a standstill. Screenwriters, represented by their Writers Guild of America union, have agreed to terms in principle with the major studios and streaming services. Now, a contract is not yet signed, and most film and TV production won't yet resume because screen actors, who belong to a separate union, have not negotiated a similar deal. Still, the Writers Guild is calling the working agreement, quote, exceptional with meaningful gains and protections. The Hollywood Reporter's editor-at-large, Kim Masters, is here to fill us in on the latest. Hey there, Kim. Hey there. Okay, so there's a lot we don't know that's not yet public. From what you understand, sketch out, what are the key points of this agreement? Yeah, we don't know for sure, but we believe the writers made big gains in terms of three key demands. So they wanted minimum staffing guarantees for the writers' rooms, which had been pared down in recent history. They wanted compensation and success on the streamers. Right now, they don't know the data of how things perform, and they don't get extra money if there is a success because they can't document things. Uh, uh-huh. And the big, big issue, too, it was artificial intelligence. Writers do not want to be handed a script generated by AI and told to give it a polish. Yeah, and I know that was the very last thing they have they were haggling over. Um, still, you know, as they continue to iron out the language on this, the Writers Union does sound quite excited about it, quite thrilled with the outcome. What about the group? 
representing film and TV studios? Are they equally enthusiastic? I doubt it. They've been going through a really, really hard time. They're in this moment of transition from the old way, which was the cable bundle, and they could make a lot of money from these cable providers. Streaming is costing them so much. They're hemorrhaging money, except for Netflix, uh, all the other Disney, Paramount. They're all losing millions and millions of dollars on streaming. They haven't figured out yet how to survive, really, in a streaming world. But more and more people are cutting the cord uh, with the cable bundles. So, you know, this is a very difficult time for the studios and their stock has been challenged. It's been really, really hard. Does this tentative deal to end the writer's strike portend anything for the actors who are still on strike? Their picket line continues. Yes, I think the studios are going to try to go very quickly to SAG-AFTRA and come up with a deal. And I will note that both you and I are SAG-AFTRA members. but And I will note we are governed by a different contract, so we are not <laughs> yes. striking. But SAG-AFTRA does represent the actors. And they, yes. they surely are combing through this to see if there's anything that might help their cause. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are going to hope that the pattern set by the Writers Guild will apply to a lot of concerns that the actors have, especially artificial intelligence. It's a slightly different concern. The actors are worried about their image being used in ways that they are not comfortable with. So if the Writers Guild came up with really strong language on artificial intelligence, that might help a lot with screen actors. Uh, and last thing, just give us a sense of, does the air feel a little lighter, brighter out there today? Does this give <laughs> any sense of, of hope after what has been a really long summer? Yes. Well, it is Yom Kippur, which many people in Hollywood observe, mm -hmm. but definitely there was such relief. There's a bar in, in North Hollywood where a lot of members of the Writers Guild gathered yesterday evening in the, into the wee hours. And from what I am hearing, it was a very raucous, upbeat celebration. They, they feel like they've had a big win here. Kim Masters, editor-at-large at The Hollywood Reporter and host of KCRW's The Business. Kim Masters, great to talk to you. Thank you. It's good to talk to you as well. About a year ago, Usher went viral in front of a small crowd on a tiny stage. Just when I thought I said all I can say, my chick on the side say she got one on the way. These are my confessions. Well, now he's getting ready to play a totally opposite kind of show, the Super Bowl halftime. Up, it's, happening. it's happening. It has happened, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, yes, it is happening. Now, of course, the Super Bowl is not happening until February 2024, so you will have to wait a few months to see Usher take that big stage. But we wanted to mark the moment today, and NPR Music's Stephen Thompson joins us to do just that. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so first, just tell me, how big of a deal is it for Usher to perform at the Super Bowl? Because, I mean, we see big names every year at this show, yeah? Well, I think over time, the Super Bowl halftime show has come to be the ultimate form of mainstream validation and acceptance. It's an audience of tens of millions of people all over the world. It has to be exciting to as many people as possible. And so what is more mainstream than playing a Super Bowl halftime show? If nothing else, it's a massive, massive piece of validation for Usher himself. Massive validation. Okay, well, we should know that this is not his first time on the Super Bowl stage. Like, he performed alongside the Black Eyed Peas way back in 2011. I... Totally did not even remember that. Is it kind of surprising that Usher hasn't headlined a halftime show up until now? Like, why do you think it's taken this long? 
Well, Usher's about 30 years into his career. He's been one of the biggest stars in R&B during that time. But when you think about the arc of not only Usher's career, but the arc of the Super Bowl halftime show, it's really evolved into a thing you can headline. When he was coming up in the 90s, a lot of the Super Bowl halftime shows were medleys. Oh, so, But it yeah. wasn't just like one artist who was like in charge of holding that stage for the entire time. So there aren't actually that many artists who have been solo headliners. Huh. Well, Usher released his last full-length studio album something like seven years ago. And then his Tiny Desk concert, which you heard a snippet from earlier, has like 18 million views now. His songs are still played on the radio. Why do you think Usher has been able to stay relevant in music for so, so long, for over three decades now? Well, I think part of it is just songcraft. Part of it is the quality of that voice. If you go back and watch that Tiny Desk concert, he's just in such strong voice throughout. And I think he's also been able to seize opportunities as they've happened. He has stayed in really excellent voice. He still looks basically the same. He does. I'm so jealous, actually. <laughs> he's just stayed on top of his game. You know, you mentioned he hasn't released a full-length studio album in seven years, but he is dropping his next album the day of his Super Bowl oh. halftime performance. Very so strategic. he is a man who knows mm -hmm. how to take advantage of opportunities when they are presented to him. Clearly. You know, you mentioned that now the Super Bowl halftime show is much more of a single headliner show. But there's also another evolution, and that's the prominence of hip hop. Like with big names such as Rihanna, Missy Elliott, Snoop Dogg, now Usher performing at the Super Bowl in recent years. How would you say the halftime show has changed since Jay-Z was brought on to produce them starting in 2019? So when Jay-Z was brought in to help produce the Super Bowl halftime show, it's important to remember that around that time, the NFL had been embroiled in a lot of controversies around the quarterback Colin Kaepernick. And so a lot of black artists were really hesitant to work with the NFL and work with the Super Bowl. And once Jay-Z was brought in, that was designed in part to, to kind of expand the reach of the artists that were going to perform at the halftime show. In the years leading up to that, you had a lot of like older, whiter, classic rock acts, people like Tom Petty and The Who... And and so I think the shift that you're talking about just really diversified the artists who were playing the halftime show. Well, I love the shift. That is NPR Music's Stephen Thompson. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Elsa. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Vermont Tourism. Trip ideas and planning tools available at vermontvacation.com. Vermont, a little bit like a dream. Very much open.